I love Genesis chapter one. It's actually one of my favorite parts in the entire Bible, and there are lots of reasons why I love this chapter. For starters, there is this rhythm to its poetry. We didn't read the whole chapter this morning, but if you read through it, you'll keep hearing this kind of energy that pulses through the words as it moves from day to day. Again and again, we read, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning. The second day, the third day, this pulsing of life keeps going through the scripture. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg of why I love this. What really inspires me is the backstory behind this poem, this creation narrative that is itself the backstory of our lives. And so today, I'm going to tell you the backstory behind this backstory. But first, I want to share with you a few thoughts about fear and scarcity. And I have talked about some of those themes before with you, but I think it's really worth repeating, especially in this time in our lives and in our world. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks on this again this year because I deeply believe that even in the midst of a global pandemic and in the midst of constant uncertainty, even as we're in our society reckoning with our racist culture that is still present, and as we're dealing with political dysfunction, I deeply believe in the midst of all of those things that God does not desire for this one holy life that we are living to be locked up and wasted in fear. Now, to be clear, I, I do want to acknowledge that fear itself is not all bad, right? I mean, it's one of our basic motivating drives that was part of what's created in us and all of our emotions, all of them, the, the emotions we, we tend to uh, associate as positive or negative, all of them have holy purposes. And so with fear, you know, a, a healthy bit of fear can keep you from touching a hot stove when you're younger or from walking out into the middle of 270 during rush hour, a healthy bit of fear might make us think twice about harming someone else or making a rash decision. But any of our emotions, they can get warped at times, and they can actually become a destructive force, especially when one emotion starts to dominate and, and drive the background of our lives. And the more powerful the emotion, the more potential it actually has, both for good and for bad in us. And fear is a powerful force. So fear actually looms large in our lives. And, and so often, it starts to squelch our imaginations of what is actually possible in our life and in our world. And, and so often it's used to influence and control masses of people in our society. And at a very deep level, fear so often becomes one of the great spiritual ailments in our life. And, and that's true really for all of us. No matter how strong or brave someone appears to be, they likely have their own set of fears that are hidden there in the dark closets of their lives. And at the root of so much fear in our lives, there is this lie 
that there is not going to be enough, that there is this emptiness. It's the lie that there's not going to be enough money or there's not going to be enough time or there is not enough of me. There just isn't enough. You know that feeling? When life gets overwhelming and you start to wonder how in the world you're going to manage it all and, and, and if what you're working on is ever going to come together and, and if, if there's ever going to be enough time, energy, enough of you, enough resources. I know I do. And I, I think a lot of us are feeling that in a particularly poignant way during this pandemic, but it's not actually unique to our time, isn't it? It comes to us in different ways and in different moments. And that particular fear that there is not going to be enough, enough time or money or enough of me, is an especially dangerous place to stay, spiritually speaking. Because it has this way of slowly sowing these deep seeds of, of lies in our minds. And when it does that, when it starts to grab a hold and take root in our mind, it actually starts to control our thinking. You know what that's like? When your mind keeps spinning around the same fear and, and when that happens, it starts shutting down your mind's ability to actually think clearly and to see the different possibilities that might be coming to you in your lives. And so we keep thinking the same thoughts over and over. We're unable to get past them. We can't see the other possibilities. And so we get stuck with one overwhelming picture of our lives. So fear can sow these powerful lies into our imaginations. But it also affects our hearts. Fear has this way of hardening and withering the heart because with fear we become less generous and less loving and less patient. We become more irritable. We become more self-protective, which makes us selfish and envious of others. That's what fear can do to our hearts. And it also has this way of eating at our bodies. With fear, things start to tighten up. Our shoulders turn in in this protective slouch. Our arteries actually harden. We know it has these physiological changes for us. And our guts can get in knots. We can develop ulcers. That's what happens when the fear of not enough begins to take over and take root in us. It poisons our minds and our hearts and our bodies. Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, calls this underlying fear of not enough the myth of scarcity, which is a nice little phrase, a nice little theological phrase, but the honest truth is it does not seem like a myth when you're in it. It feels like reality, and I know that because I have been stuck in it myself along the way. And to tell you the truth, when you are stuck in it, there's no amount of simple reasoning that can get you out. It just doesn't work. The only thing that actually enables you to find new horizons of hope is for your imagination to begin to be opened up. Not because the imagination is less real, but because our imagination is actually the very faculty that God has given us to help us see something new. And so for about a month now, we are going to explore together the myth of scarcity versus the biblical vision 
of abundance. Because these two things are a dynamic that are playing themselves out over and over again throughout the scriptures. And it's a dynamic that plays itself out over and over again in our lives. We can never really internalize this enough, I think. And this is a dynamic that I think is especially poignant right now at this point in our world. And so as we explore these, the scriptures around this theme, we're going to see how the myth of scarcity infects so much of our personal and political and social and spiritual lives, and it cuts us off from life and joy and peace, from that abundant life that Jesus speaks about in John 10, the abundant life that God intends for us all. So as we explore the Bible, I'm really hoping that that these stories in our scriptures, that, that we will take them in and they will start to reshape our imaginations so that we can actually see new possibilities, that we can see our life and we can see our world in new ways. And that is actually the whole point of Genesis chapter one, the backstory of the Bible. So let's get to the backstory of our backstory, the story behind this poem of creation. Imagine for a moment that you are in 6th century BC, it's ancient Jerusalem, and for 18 months now, Babylon, this foreign power, has laid siege to your city. And for 18 months, we're only six months into our pandemic, for 18 months, no one got in or out, and they didn't know when it would end. And there began to be a food source shortage, one even greater than we've seen at times. And people actually began to starve everyone around you until finally, after 18 months of this, the walls of Jerusalem begin to crumble. And the Babylon army begins to sweep into Jerusalem the way that ancient armies did, burning and slaughtering and raping and pillaging. In fact, you know, this last week on Friday was 9-11, and so I want to invite you to really get a picture of what happened in ancient Jerusalem. Think back to to a few years ago, and imagine Al-Qaeda surrounding St. Louis, just waiting to sweep in. Or imagine ISIS sitting outside the walls of where you live for a year and a half until your children are starving to death and then they come swarming in. That is basically the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem that leads to the exile. Well, not everyone in that siege is killed. Most people are, but anyone that was deemed especially important, some of the leaders and the scribes and the politicians, they watch as their homes and their lives and their families are completely destroyed. But then those leading citizens are actually carried off into exile. And imagine that you are one of those people. You are now a prisoner of war living in and among the Babylonians. You're living in a foreign land and months go by after 18 months of siege and now months in this foreign land and despair starts to set into your heart. There is this numbness that grows in you and it's growing in those around you because you know you've lost everything that you cared about including your blessed assurance that Yahweh is mine or that God is in control in any kind of meaningful way at all. 
that that great temple that was the very abode of God, the, the place that Im- held God's very presence, it was plundered and destroyed, and any faith in this God was wiped out with it, and all that is left is this deep and profound void and emptiness. That is the backstory behind Genesis chapter 1. Because you see, it was actually there by the rivers of Babylon, sitting in exile, that the inspired poet sits down and begins to write these verses. When God begins to create, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. Darkness covered the face of the deep. And the wind of God, the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters. This is how the poetry begins. And you can imagine the community of despair-filled exiles gathering together, hearing this poetry read aloud to them for the first time, and it resonates because it's so clear to them. They can tell that, that this poem is about them. They are there. The earth was a formless void, just like Jerusalem and their home now is. It's a formless void they know so well. Thick darkness covered the face of the deep, a darkness like pillars of black smoke burning and suffocating and isolating. It all covered the face of the deep sea. And remember, the sea for Israel is always this poetic image because the Israelites, historically, they were not a seafaring people. They were actually a seafearing people. People. For them, the sea is a place of, of chaos. They, they didn't, weren't navigators on the sea. So the sea is the place where storms just come out of nowhere and drown you. The sea is the place of uncertainty. It's the place of swirling, churning waters, the storms of death. That's what the sea is in the imagination of the Israelite people. And so the world in this poem is a formless void, the poet writes, and darkness covers over the face of the deep sea. It's a poem about the way things are when you are in exile, when it seems like there is nothing left in your world, when there is only emptiness. And these exiles, they hear it read aloud, and it reaches into their gut. Just as it reaches into so many of our experiences in our life. I mean, some of you know what it is like to look around and only see the swirling waters of chaos to look around at your life and to only see emptiness. Maybe, no, you haven't been a victim of war, but there are other kinds of emptinesses that we have experienced, an emptiness that says there is not enough. You are not enough. An emptiness that says you will not find joy this year with all that's going on in your life and in our community and in our world. Joy is not a a reality. An emptiness that says you better hold on to what you have as tightly as you can because who knows what uncertainty is coming in 2021. 
an emptiness that says the future that you had thought you were building will never be yours. That emptiness you see is the very myth of scarcity. Now, I'm not saying that your pain or the exile's pain is a myth. That's not what I mean by that. It certainly was not a myth. It was a reality. But the emptiness, the void, is the myth. This belief that nothing new is possible, nothing good can come out of this. This great myth that wants to keep us trapped in the darkness and in the chaos that says nothing more beautiful will come. That's the myth. But Genesis chapter 1 tells us that it is exactly into the emptiness and the void, over the waters of chaos, that God begins to call out piece by piece new life and new beginnings. It's out of that void. Let there be light, God says, into that void. Let the waters of chaos separate, making sea and sky. And let the waters of chaos be gathered into one place so that dry, solid land can appear. And let there be lights to govern both day and night so there is not chaos anymore. Sun and moon and stars, again and again, the voice of God speaks. Let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was, and God saw that it is good. This goodness gets pulled out of the very dark emptiness. And there is this rhythmic beauty to it all, like music pulsing through the poetry, pulsing through the chaotic mess, bringing order and life out of all of it. In other words, out of the very waters of chaos, God pulls out new beginnings. God creates new beginnings. In the beginning. It's the beginning that's happening over and over and over again because even now, even now, God's word is calling new life out of emptiness. God's life, even now, is flowing into the world. Even now, God's life is pulsing in this creation, bringing new beginnings. And that's what Genesis 1 is actually trying to help us see. All of creation is full of divine life. It's in the rhythm of the waves crashing against the dry land that was created. It's in the rhythm of the seasons as the earth changes. And it's in the, it's in the rhythm and struggles of human stories, that holy divine life. It's in the energy that's flowing between the trees and the sky. It's in the, the song of the lark and the bullfrog. So Telhard de Chardin, a 20th century French Jesuit, who is also a scientist, he ends up writing, at the heart of matter is the very heart of God. The heartbeat of God is pulsing there. The life and the energy of God is there pulsing in the universe. You, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity actually explains some of that because it, it basically says that all matter, all stuff, is actually energy itself condensed down into something tangible. It's energy 
formed into matter. It's concentrated. And the Eastern Orthodox Christians, they talk about all of creation is actually the very energy of the triune God spilling out of the dance of love. Everything is the energies of God spilling forth from the Trinity and love, which is to say the whole earth is full of divine life. And so God begins to speak to it. Be fruitful and multiply, God says to the fish and the sea creatures of every kind. Be fruitful and multiply, God says to the birds of the air soaring on the wind more and more. Be fruitful and multiply, God says to the earth bringing forth plants and animals. Be fruitful and multiply, God says to the human ones. There is an abundance of life that is multiplying all around us all of the time. There is more energy and more life and more possibilities than we can possibly imagine. And so anytime we start to hear that voice say, there is not enough, it is either a failure of our imaginations or a profound failure of generosity. God did not create a world of scarcity. God created and God continues to create a world of abundance where there is more than enough goodness and life pulsing and coming all the time. God has created a world where life is bubbling up out of the seas and life is pulsing even through your body. It is flowing through your veins. Can you feel it as you, as you sit there and listen, that pulsing, that energy of life? It is flowing through you right now. That's what Genesis chapter 1 is inviting us to experience and see. The community in exile began hearing that poetry and they heard it again. And they heard it again. They heard it read aloud when they would gather together and it became actually a kind of worshiping liturgy for them. It became part of their worship that started to reshape their imagination and reshape their self-understanding. It helped to reshape the very way they saw their lives, their living in exile. And the more they lived with this poetry, the more they realized, you know what, this is what our ancient stories that grandma and grandpa and our forefathers and foremothers had always been telling us about. This is what the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has always done. God spoke into that formless void of Sarah's womb, that painful barrenness, and said, that painful barrenness that said, Sarah, you are not enough. But God said, let there be new life. And there was, and God saw that it was good. God spoke into the darkness of slavery in Egypt and said, let there be light and freedom from captivities, and let the waters of the Red Sea be separated so that dry land may appear, and there was, and God saw that it was good. See, here at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, is really the whole of biblical faith. It's the faith that wherever there is darkness, wherever there is formless void, wherever it looks like there is not enough, the Spirit of God is actually hovering over that space. 
And the word of God is ready to be spoken into that space. And one day, that word will become flesh. And one day, that word dwells among us full of grace and truth, as the Gospel of John puts it in John chapter 1. And it says, and in him there was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. John chapter one, verses four and five. Again, it's that same poetry of creation we have in Genesis that the gospel of John gives us. This is the gospel of our Lord. Now next week, we're gonna see what happens when we can no longer trust the abundance of God's life around us and how that begins to affect our world. We'll see how the myth of scarcity starts to actually infect the biblical story and how it infects our own story in some of the most destructive ways. But for today, here at the very beginning, let me invite you to allow Genesis chapter 1 to shape your imaginations this week. You know, there are so many voices every day telling you that there isn't enough to go around or that there may not be enough for tomorrow. Don't believe the lies of scarcity that are stirring in your heart or the lies that you hear on your TV or that you read on Facebook. It is simply not true because the myth of scarcity, it's it's a marketing ploy. It's a political tool, and it will suck the very life out of you. But God's story, the gospel story, invites us to see something very differently, that the, the very God who calls abundant life out of seeming emptiness is the same God who brings resurrection out of the suffering of a cross, and it is the very same God who is present in your story and in your fears and in that seeming emptiness that haunts you. Now, if you have a, a hard time taking that in and trusting it, know that you're not alone. In fact, if it's hard for you, I want to invite you to try two things. First, start paying attention to the patterns in your thoughts. Remember what I said earlier about how fear infects our imaginations and our thoughts? They actually, our thoughts shape our experience of reality. So start to notice how many of your thoughts are actually perpetuating fear and scarcity. Just notice how many thoughts come across your minds every day. And don't shame yourself or beat yourself up about those thoughts. But notice how many of those, there is not enough, you are not enough, they are not enough. Voices are going through your mind all the time. And as you do, ask for God's grace to free your imagination from that so that you can start to see what you've been unable to see. In other words, I'm actually asking you to pray day one of creation over your thoughts and over your fears. Notice those thoughts and those patterns as they come and pray, let there be light. Just that simple. There is not enough. I am not enough. Will we have enough? Let there be light. Just do that again and again. Do it over the next month. 
And as you pray, let there be light, you will start to notice a profound change. Now, the second invitation for you is to start to intentionally practice gratitude and to be as concrete as you can. Be very specific and name some concrete things because over time, practicing gratitude actually begins to change your soul. Just as paying attention to those thoughts can change your mind, this can actually begin to change your heart and your body and fears grip on them as you name and notice certain things and practice gratitude. Even when you don't feel grateful, take time to name things to be grateful for. That's my invitation for you. Let your mind and your heart and your body become unchained and hear God's voice that is still ringing out over creation and that is still ringing out over your life It is good. He, she, you, at the very heart of it, is very good. Amen.